DoorDash brought this up and it created a whole bunch of drama. But I do think that at some point, engineering and product needs to know what's actually coming through the pipes from customers. Welcome to the Startup Smoothie Podcast, where we discuss and blend together the best customer experience and operations strategies for startups. As our special guest for today's episode, we are thrilled to have Oscar Godson, the current CTO of Quill, with an expansive background in product management. Oscar shares with us valuable insights and personal experiences on building a company culture around solving customer problems and how embracing customer feedback can aid in scaling a product effectively. Join us as we unravel the nuances of CX and product management with Oscar. Customer is always right. It is a cutting edge, high tech firm out of the Midwest. Explain business ethics and how they are applied today. Ooh, that's a rough business to be in right now. <laughs> Cousin business is a boom. New technology permits us to do very exciting things. Hi, Oscar. Thanks for joining us today. Hey. I actually just wanted to start out by telling you a story that happened with me last night and get your opinion. I had placed an order yesterday at Best Buy for a computer monitor. I placed the order around noon and I was told that I could get it picked up within one hour. After about five hours of waiting on my email confirmation, I drove down to Best Buy and asked if I could get my monitor. The guy looked up my order and without me asking any further questions, the customer service rep at the counter was just like, one, it's not ready. Two, the one-hour pickup is just an estimate. And three, you cannot go grab this monitor yourself. You have to wait for our team to process this order. To me, it seemed that he was very familiar with the disconnect with customer expectations with this one-hour service offering because he knew exactly what my follow-up questions were going to be when he told me my order was not ready. My question to you is, why does this happen so often? Why are so many companies comfortable over-promising in their product and service offerings? Yeah, I've, uh, I have been there too. I honestly think that there's a disconnect from the product team with what's really happening on the floor with customer support or the engineers making the software to estimate the time. There's like information that's not being funneled back up. I think what's happening is that these executives have this vision for what the company should offer, and it's just not the reality. Gave them Morpheus. He lied to us, Trinity. He tricked us. So the example there of, oh, and you can't go grab this other one, and it's just an estimate and all this stuff. If there was a feedback loop, you could build that into the estimate. You could solve the operational reason why you can't just go pick it up off the shelf yourself. But I think if you cycle that information back up, you can probably just solve that and still get that dream vision that the executive team wants, but less top down and more of a circular fashion. Yeah, but there's definitely a disconnect there in what they're looking to promise as opposed to what they're actually able to offer. It could be just that particular Best Buy is currently understaffed, but ideally there's some functionality built in to recognize that. At the end of the day, it's not so much that I needed that within one hour. It's just that I had the expectation that I could pick it up within one hour and then I didn't get it until today at 10 a.m. You gotta do better than this, kid! Are there any particular traditional or let's say old school ways in regard to product development slash management that you personally can no longer tolerate or embrace? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there was a time where you couldn't just move fast, break things because you were shipping out physical CD-ROMs. Internet wasn't really prevalent, but the problem was that the organizations didn't move 
as fast in terms of operational change as the technology was changing. So when the internet was easier and updates were easier to make where you could push a file that gets uploaded within seconds to update your software, the actual operational side wasn't being updated. There's still companies that operate on a waterfall type method. That's one that I don't really tolerate anymore. And I think the biggest reason for that is just that going back to the cycle of what's happening on the ground floor and then having it go back up to the product managers and leadership team and going back down and getting it worked into the product is just that assumptions are being built on top of other assumptions. In terms of like the old way of doing it, maybe they would do case studies, they'd interview 10 people in a boardroom and say, what do you think of this new software to write documents on? And maybe those 10 people just happen to be from one location or they have a certain type of experience. And then from then on, over the course of 12 months of development, where you never get more feedback, all of these assumptions are built on more and more and then release it and you realize, oh, the world has changed over the year or our product market fit actually isn't really that type of a customer. And so today I wouldn't really tolerate product development in such a long cycle. It really is mm. truly an MVP and that word gets thrown around all kinds of ways, but really what's one outcome that you want a user to have to feel they've accomplished a goal that they wanted and just see if you can perfect that, get information, then what's something else that would make life even easier and just keep adding onto it rather than try to come up with a thousand features and release it all at once in this one big grand release. Yeah, I think that's a really insightful perspective that correlates a lot to product road mapping. How do you map out the now, the next, and the later in regard to creating a product with customer experience in mind? So I think about mapping out what's now, next, and later. It helps when you have a personal experience with it or you can really empathize with the customer using it. And that could be just being able to talk with your customers. It might be because you're trying to solve a problem that a close family member or friend has. And when you're trying to decide what's now, next, and later, it's good to focus on something that's bite-sized, tangible, that you can build quickly and iterate on. And I guess just to give an example, if you're building like a new note-taking app, you might want things like audio recordings and videos and all these types of things. But what's a problem that you could solve today that's super easy just to get feedback on now and it's like a real problem to solve? And maybe you don't have this problem. Maybe your grandmother has a hard time typing because she has some disability. And so something that's immediate that you can do now is provide an audio way. And then you can expand into things later like typing and other aspects like that. And so really that's how I would how I would do it. For me, I always want to work on a product where we're looking to solve problems rather than solely aiming to make money. The driving force should always be finding ways to improve the lives of our target audience. How does a company do better research, though, to avoid becoming, say, like the next Juicero? For listeners who are unfamiliar with the fiasco that was Juicero, over the course of four years, the little startup that couldn't raised $118 million in VC capital under the guise of revolutionizing juicing for the masses. This was to be done with a stylish Wi-Fi-enabled DRM-backed juicer. Yet despite the complexity, Juicero's downfall was simple. The packets used to make fresh juice could be squeezed just as easily by hand, rendering the company's $400 piece of machinery unnecessary. In the end, it became one of just a handful of growing symbols of a dysfunctional Silicon Valley culture that raises money to invent problems to find solutions for. Okay, now let's get back to the show. I won't go into the whole history of it because, you know, that's a really great read. You should check it out online if you aren't familiar with that product. But I think in their example, they were so focused on the end product. It's like the next cure egg, but for juice. They put this bag in and you get juice that they just 
overlooked like really obvious things that they probably would have been able to solve by showing it to some strangers, even just picking random people off the street. Yeah. Hey, what do you think of this product? Here it is. Can you give me your feedback on it? And so I think it just, it really goes back to focusing on the customers and you might not be the end user that's going to be using it. And whether you are or not, it's really important to, to talk with real people that might be using your product. Go back to that Best Buy example where leadership probably was like, we should be able to tell people like within an hour, they can come pick something up. They're just looking purely at numbers, like people that come in every hour or we give them an estimate for an hour, they come and pick it up and we have a higher chance of them actually buying it. Yeah, but so let's say you have the user research, you're able to determine a group of people in which this product is improving their lives. When you're looking to scale, how do you lay the groundwork to get the data collected and the feedback funneled across the entire organization? I think that really the most important part is creating the culture around it. I've seen companies that are large and actually even have all of this technology there. They have all these tools and the only people that are looking at it are the data analytics team or a couple of product managers. I think it starts with building a culture of, I think we can solve this customer's problem by building this feature rather than this would be a cool feature to build. It really depends on what type of company you are, what software or what service that you're providing. At the bare minimum, the easiest thing is to reach out to customers that have written in or people that have converted into customers that have been a customer for a certain amount of time and just reach out and ask some questions. If you're new and you haven't launched yet, another good way is simply to ask friends and family. Now, remember, deputies, the real treasures are your friends and family. Obviously, they're probably going to be a little bit more biased. They might not be as open, but it's still good just to get some information. Personally, I encourage everyone to collect that information and again, to like build that culture around it to reference user information all the time. So mentioning it in all hands, bringing it up in stand up, saying, hey, there's this bug, you know, X person has brought this up, 10 people have brought this up and here's like their quotes. It'll more naturally lead to finding the best tools for your company to collect that information. So you have a fairly small team at Quill, and I think this is a preference for a lot of people in the startup industry because things just move so fast with a small team. Is that your personal preference as well? Yeah, I love small teams. I've worked in companies as little as me, my founder, and one employee to Microsoft, and at that time it was 90,000 people. For me, I really love small teams. I like having a feeling that the work that I'm producing matters. I remember at a larger company when I worked at Microsoft, I could just not go into work for a week or two weeks and feeling like nobody would even know I'm not even there. I also really love that small teams can accomplish a lot. Large companies like trying to replicate this because it's known that you have smaller teams, the communication can move around all these people faster. So you have companies like Spotify doing like their Spotify model where there's independent pods and they can make decisions for themselves and move along. And so I, I just personally like small teams because you can ship software and make decisions so fast. I do think that, you know, a bigger company is great for someone that might be more junior that really wants to be an expert in a particular area. At a startup, you're going to have to be more hands-on across the board in all different aspects of the company. So it depends on your taste as well. I couldn't agree more. Being a stakeholder is just more rewarding, and I feel it leads to a stronger sense of teamwork and shared purpose. But with that, in my experience at larger organizations, I feel like most product managers are... I don't want to generalize, but they can be bad at empathizing with the customer. What do you think you do differently with your team at Quill to focus on user outcomes? Yeah, I don't think everybody knows what Quill is. So I'll just first mention 
Quill is a product membership. If you ever become unemployed, we help you pay your bills. We offer a whole suite of other financial services and products on top of that. And with that, it's very important to really empathize with the customers because uh, anyone that's ever been through unemployment or a layoff knows that it's incredibly stressful. I've been the manager having to lay people off and there's lots of emotions. I've been on that end as well, being laid off, dealing with the states and their processes is really a struggle. And so I think trying to remember that there's a human on the other end is really important. I feel that a lot of product managers get lost in the weeds of the work that there's maybe this goal of we need to launch this feature. And so that they become, as I would describe, like a ticket pusher. They have this task they need to write up a ticket for it and they just need to ship it sure yeah it checks off the boxes yeah this form accepts this input and it has this copy on the page and the brand looks right but really you're building all this for a human on the other end so at quill one thing that i try to do differently is rather than going through and just checking off boxes of features that we want to build it goes back to what are the actual problems people are telling us so for a lot of the team i think probably over half at one point or another we've been laid off and we reference that as like starting point as we build out more features and we collect more information we really want to build features that people are talking to us about for example stuff that, that we hadn't thought of at the time but then came up later were like i wish there was a really good resource on like how to help me through the unemployment process where that's not really something we had on our roadmap and people are just saying like hey i just need someone to hold my hand through this process and that's something that we just heard from listening to people so you mentioned there are a vast amount of products that you would like to build, but you can't. And can you just elaborate on the reason for that? I think there's a difference between a product strategy and a UX strategy. You can't just release a bunch of features. That was Microsoft's strategy. Back in the day, you would just get a list of Microsoft Word and 10,000 different features that nobody even used. It was a headache to manage from a like engineering perspective. And so you have to focus on separating the UX strategy from the product strategy. We do want to have all of these amazing features and have this idea of outsourcing your financial stress. You pay one membership and you get all of these different features, but we could do that, but it would have terrible UX. And so we really want to focus on the experience of all of that. So we incrementally build out these features and we were talked before like around now, next and later, and then it goes back to a bite-sized feature. To start, we launched with just unemployment insurance and next it'll be something else, but we won't build out that feature until the product strategy and the UX strategy come together to create something that people love and want to pay for. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So we have a segment called Yay or Nay in which I'm going to list off a couple startup concepts, methodologies, products, and you just tell me yay or nay. Sounds great. Okay. First one, building in-house internal tools. Nay. 10 years ago, sure, but not anymore. There's lots of options now. Okay. It, options being? My personal preference is internal IO. There's companies called like Retool and they provide tools to build out internal admin systems without you having to have a dedicated engineering team. Ah, gotcha. Cool. Growth hacking. Uh, nay, to me, it's just a buzzword for what I used to call marketing. Yeah, no, I would agree. Engineering and product teams answering support tickets. Gay for me. DoorDash brought this up and it created a whole bunch of drama, but I do think that at some point engineering and product needs to know what's actually coming through the pipes from customers. Jira. Nay for me. Too slow and complex when there's a lot of other options for that product. 
I feel like you're going to get a lot of heat for that one, but <laughs> we will move on. Daily stand-ups. Nay, I think there are times, such as like before a launch, where you might need it, but I think mm-hmm. people follow this way too religiously, so nay. Move fast, break things. In general, yay. My background is heavily in the financial fintech world, and you shouldn't be breaking money movement (laughs) and screwing with people's money. So nay for fintech, yay for most other sectors. Gotcha, gotcha. Calendar block-offs. Yay for sure. Definitely check your company culture, though, if this is like a necessity, especially if it's you're blocking off time to eat food for lunch. Outcomes over output. Yay for me. I think it's another way of saying work smarter, not harder. Interesting. What do you define as an outcome, though? Because if I'm honest, sometimes it feels a little sloppy and it's it maybe a little harder to define the correlation versus the causation of what the outcome was. Yeah, so there's a book, Build What Matters, talked about OKRs. And so I'm not a big sports person, but the way that they describe it is an outcome might be like winning the Super Bowl. I worked at Acorns for a while. They wanted the outcome to be that people are saving and investing more. You were trying to just look at the output. You might look at the number of times someone is making a deposit. But that's not really outcome because they can be making $1 deposits. You really want the outcome to be that they have a habit of investing more. To me, the output is almost like tracking KPIs where it's this is like a general health of your company, but mm-hmm. is it actually leading to the goal that you have at the end or not? We're only one step away. That's usually when the ground falls out from underneath your feet. Well, since we're on the topic of goals, what is the goal at Quill? What are you guys looking to disrupt exactly? Yeah, so I'm super excited. And at Quill, the thing that we're really focused on disrupting is that so many companies in the fintech world focus on making it easier and easier to save money. But the fact of the matter is not everybody can save money. And if they are, they probably are not able to save enough money to really help them when an emergency happens. So Quill, we provide you with money on top of your state unemployment benefits if you ever become unemployed for a flat membership cost. So whether you're making a tech salary or you are working at a fast food restaurant, everybody gets up to $3,000 if they become unemployed. If you've ever been through state unemployment benefits, it's a massive hassle. So many forms, huge delays. With Quill, you become unemployed, let us know right away and within a few days we can get you your money into your bank account so you can keep paying your bills and not have to worry about the timelines of the state unemployment. Oscar, thank you so much for sitting down, taking the time to share your insights and experiences with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you as a guest on our podcast. Thank you. This was this was fun. We're going to have a good time. Always. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Startup Smoothie Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Quill's financial wellness membership, including its exclusive layoff insurance product, check out getquill.com. For more information, join us next week as we sit down with Craig Stoss, the director of CX services at Partner Hero, to discuss the intersection of AI and CX and how businesses can utilize artificial intelligence to improve customer experiences. It's a pretty insightful conversation.